Okay. Let's kind of get back to our seats. You guys seemed a little sleepy. Wanted to get the blood flowing, you know? I, well, let me ask this question. Don't need to answer it out loud. But what do you believe about God? Now, that can be a theological, intellectual, and a lot of times we have these thoughts about God, but it's more than just what do you think in your head. How do you live that out? In other words, do your activities of the day, how you navigate life, are they consistent with what you say about God? Now, I I like reading church signs. And I think church signs try and attempt to tell people what they believe about God, but they kind of get messed up somewhere. This past week, I ran into, I never saw this before, a sign for a Seventh-day Baptist church. And their mission statement underneath the sign said, where the Sabbath is still holy. Now, I don't know if they still sacrifice animals and other kinds of things like that because if they want to live in the Old Testament, there's a whole lot more that goes along with that other than just worshiping on Saturday. Another church sign I saw this past week, it had a traditional service like at 8.30, and then it had a flexible service at 10 o'clock. Now, what do you think they, they meant by flexible? I did not go in to find out, okay? So what do you believe about God is more than an intellectual question. It's about your life. It's about what your activity states about what you believe about God. And the problem in America and the problem we see in the Old Testament as well is that so often we take our traditions and we make them absolutes and we take our absolutes that God has ordained and we make them traditions saying, well, we can navigate those differently. And over here, no, these are how everybody else has to behave. And so we have this really interesting blend of what you call pagan culture, idols in the land, along with what we claim we believe about God. Now, I'm starting a series about investment. And as soon as you use the word investment, what do you think about? Money. And you think about retirement, building wealth, how much you save. But investment goes way beyond just money. It goes to family. You know, people talk about investing in their families by taking vacations, supporting each other's interests, going to sporting events. And I still remember those days where our kids were out among sports and there was not enough parents or cars to take them to their activities. So you're dropping off, getting here and going there. People talk about investing in education, getting involved in local schools, in private schools, in homeschool, in college. But let me ask you this question. When you think about investment, does it correspond with your belief that you say you believe about God? Now, you hear me talk about idols a lot, and idols are things that we invest in. They're things we give our lives to. They're the gods of this world. And they compete against the God of all creation. 
And what we normally do with idols is, well, we either embrace them and incorporate them into our beliefs, and so we kind of dress them up as Christian to make them look as Christian as we can, or we tear them down. The three predominant idols that we wrestle with in America, there's more, but these three stand out. You already mentioned the one, it's money. Look at the amount of debt our nation has. Look at the amount of debt that we have as individuals. And you will know that we are bowing down to an idol of money because somehow we think we don't have enough. And we just sang about Christ being more than enough. Another idol is that of sex. Mike and I recently were at a conference on sexual addiction and pornography. And if you were reading the news this past week, the governor of Utah just announced pornography as, an, as a statewide health care crisis because of everything they're finding out in terms of brain development and other kinds of addictions. Evidently, Utah, which is predominantly Mormon, has the highest rate of viewing pornography than any other state in the U.S. So he announced a national health care crisis. And power. Now, if you don't believe power is an idol, just watch what happens when people run for the president of the United States. It's a circus, isn't it? And it's a circus based upon the reflection of what we believe and how we live. And I say that on all aspects of what's been going on. But those three words, and you start talking about investment, and we start talking about money, sex, and power, we're uncomfortable, aren't we? In fact, we get a little defensive. We start saying, okay, what's the pastor going to talk about this morning? If we look at Scripture, idols need to be named, and they need to be torn down. That was a prophetic role in the Old Testament, and it wasn't a popular one. People get angry when the prophet would come along and take their idols away because they had taken their idols and they incorporated them into their beliefs and most did not stop believing about Yahweh, but they brought other beliefs alongside. And what they didn't understand is that is equivalent to stopping believing about Yahweh. And so they tried to fit all this together. We see this. Ezekiel was confronting his people that day. And so he historically looks back and names the three idols and says that we are worse off than they were. Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 16, verses 48 through 50, As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. And note what is said here. She and her daughters had pride, had excess of food and prosperous ease, they did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. There we see those three idols, money, sex, and power. Now, as we worship every Sunday morning, we do something you probably don't think about too often, but we do that as an act of worship. And it's something we call taking an offering. Why do we do that? Because it helps dethrone the idol that money has in our lives. We are called to be generous givers. 
But what does our practice tell us about our belief in America? By the way, when you look statistically around the world, America is the most generous nation in all the world, okay? That's a stated fact. It's a stated reality. There is no nation that gives like we do. And we can pat ourselves on the back and say, look how great we are, or let's look at the facts. The facts are that 5% of Americans give away 10% or more of their income. That's it. Just 5%. What about in the church? Those who claim to be born again, 12% give away 10% or more. Now, what I find equally shocking, and I've dealt with this when I consult churches, is that the leadership of the church, one of the first things I go in and talk about is, okay, you know, I want to know what you're doing financially in terms of being generous. And what I'm shocked is that there's staff, there's pastors, there's leadership boards, many who do not give a basic tithe to the church or to the Lord on any level. Now, you're probably sitting there thinking, hmm, I wonder if Pastor Greg does. All we have is his word. Maybe he's lying. In the old days, they used to say, can I get a witness? Remember those days? And somebody would stand up and give a witness for the Lord about what God did that week. Uh, there's probably only one person other than my wife who knows what we actually give, and that's the treasurer. Is he here today? <laughs> I won't ask if there's a witness. No. You have my permission to ask him whether or not Pastor Greg's tithes, okay? Based upon what you know I make and based upon what he knows gets sent in. When you look at the Old Testament, and understand that God initiated laws to help them understand that he owns it all. Okay? That was why. And what we have to understand, too, is that they were a nation. And the tithe is very similar to what we call a tax. Before they had kings, before they had incorporation, what we call like our nation in America, God instituted this system and put it in place with the year of Jubilee, um, with their tithes, which were three. And you might call that their taxation system. In the New Testament, there was the principle of generosity. Paul comes along and says this, and of course he was educated, a Pharisee about Pharisees. He understood the tithe, the tithe system, but he said, listen, we have to look at everything as the Lord's. And he says, many times we are stewards. So the question of a steward is not how much do I give away, but the question of a steward is, how much am I going to keep for myself? Very different question. So a good biblical steward who's generous when they look at their tax returns would say this, wow, I really had a good year giving, if they had a good year giving. It's just a very different way of looking at life. See, a steward invests very differently than a perceived owner. And I'm using the word perceived owner because if we are stewards and everything is God's, then we are not owners. Now, somehow, we could do this anonymously, and we would take every single checkbook in this place this morning, and every single credit card, and every single debit card, and we would tally up everything that was spent on everything. 
What would it tell us about what we believe? What would our doctrinal statement be based upon our practice? What would it tell us about trusting God? What would, what would it tell us about our hearts? Now, investment strategies are part of our culture. And again, when I talk about investments, first thing we think about is what we think and feel about money. It's where we go to first. It just indicates that that really is one of the predominant idols that we got to wrestle with and tear down. But there's investments of time, there's investments of family, there's spiritual investments, and that's a much broader conversation we can have this morning. We get so small in our thinking. However, just like they say that our current political climate is a reflection of our culture, I believe that money is a reflection of our deeper thinking on what and who we want to invest in. So here's the first principle I want you to consider this morning. Where you invest is where you get your return and loss. Where you invest is where you get your return and loss. If you invest in God, there will be a loss in idols. There's this simple axiomatic principle that says, listen, if you invest time over here, you're taking time away from over here. So understand investment, there is return and there's loss. But what we try to do is keep our hands in both worlds. And Jesus says you can't do that. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Paul writes, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Every farmer knows this to be true. If you sow a field, and by the way, if you want wheat to come up, and if you want corn to come up, you sow how? You sow generously. If you sow stingily and try to space them out, you get a wheat crop. But you can't come along and say, listen, you know, I, I changed my mind halfway through this. I know I sowed corn, but I really want wheat. It doesn't work that way. What you sow, what you invest in, is what you will reap. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 6 this way. And I'm going to read a passage, and you can follow with me in your scripture if you want, but I'm going to read it from the message because of how it is stated. It comes across rather clear in this context. Jesus writes these words. Stockpile treasure in heaven. By the way, just after this, a familiar verse for those of us that were raised in church is seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added. What are all these things? Stuff we're talking about right now. And then he says that, you know, the day has enough trouble of its own, which means you don't need to add more trouble to the day by chasing down idols. But the principle here is seeking first God and his kingdom. Stockpile treasure in heaven. Where do you want to invest? Where it's safe from moth and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is, is the place you will most want to be and end up being. Your eyes are windows into your body. If you open your eyes wide in wonder and belief, your body fills up with light. If you open your eyes to other stuff, that is what your body fills up with as well. 
If you live squinty-eyed in greed and distrust, your body's a dank cellar. If you pull the blinds on your windows, what a dark life you will have. You can't worship two gods at once. Loving one God, you end up hating the other. Adoration of one feeds contempt for the other. You can't worship God and money both. And then he talks about don't be anxious, but seek first God and his kingdom and his righteousness. What Jesus is saying is this, that our hearts, our mind, our spirituality, our totality of life will follow our treasure. What we choose to invest in, our life will follow that in spite of what we claim we believe. We're going to get all excited. We're going to fall in love with, use any language you want, about the things that we invest in. Now, this concerns me today because it's very popular in our culture, in our current climate, to do a lot of church bashing. It just goes on everywhere. And I think about if we're going to invest in the body of Christ, it's not a building, it's not a set of programs, but it's people. As a healthy follower of Jesus, if I invest in the church, I will what then? I will love the church. Because he loves his church. Why? Because he invested his very life in that church. But we get all mixed up with our traditions and with God's authority, and we get things turned around, and we end up becoming the very thing we claim we never want to be. That leads me to the second principle. The laws of God produce freedom in life. Now, do you really believe that? I heard one little (laughs) hoo-hoo. Thought there might be another amen or something, but let me say it again. The laws of God produce freedom in life. And if you believe that, you're going to invest in what then? You're going to invest in things that are eternal, where moth and rust cannot destroy. And that includes all aspects of anything that we have. If you violate the laws of God, there's a loss of freedom. Now, Satan comes along, and he's known as the deceiver. He is known as the father of lies. He's the angel of light, which means he looks good, but he's not really good. He's described as a lion waiting to seek to devour. But his strategy is he wants to cause you to feel the opposite. He wants you to think that good will feel bad and bad will feel good. And this is clearly seen in our idols, isn't it? Take money. Think about the attitudes about saving and spending, but actually what we do with it. Think about generosity. Think about our emotions towards it, especially towards people who have more than us. Think about debt versus non-debts. Think about the Major League Baseball player this past week who walked away from a $13 million contract. And everybody's like, how can he walk away from that kind of money? But see, he went overseas and he ended up working with trying to free those in the sex industry. And he did it once but not twice. And he came home saying to his partner, we're going to go home and we're going to do what? We're going to play baseball for money? And then when the major league association said he can't bring his son into the practice anymore, he said, you know what? I I really, goodbye. And so the world looking on saying the guy's crazy. 
He walked away from $13 million contract. He says, listen, he goes, I got a lot of money. I've made a lot of money. I don't need money, but I want to do something. He wants to invest differently. And the world sits and scratches their head. Just look at our conversations about the idol of sexuality today. All this controversy over bathrooms. I mean, it's insane. Paul writes these words in 1 Timothy chapter 6. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. See, we really don't believe that. And you know, it says the love of money. It's not money that's the root. It is the love of money. So we give our hearts to it. Through its craving, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. See, he's talking about investing here. Instead of investing money, we invest what? Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you see the contrast in investment? We invest in God because he is faithful. He's made a covenant with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. Tomorrow you could wake up and no matter what you have in your bank account and your savings could all be gone. It's happened to every single nation in history where their stuff got devalued. I have a $100 trillion bill to prove that from Zimbabwe. That was actual currency in its day. So this law of God, he owns it all. That's a third principle. He owns it all. It's his. It is not ours. We are stewards. We are not owners. And when we really believe this and incorporate this in our life, it will teach us very differently about how to navigate life. Think about the word steward again. Just quickly, we are stewards of truth. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are stewards of time. Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. We are stewards of talent. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. Each one should use whatever gift he's received to serve others faithfully, administering God's grace in its various forms. We are stewards of treasure, 1 Corinthians 16, 2. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. Now, let me make an attempt to understand this context in which Paul and Jesus were talking. When you go back to the Old Testament, said before, it was like a taxation. They were a monotheistic culture, And so God put this system in place. In Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30, he says, listen, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. 
It is holy to the Lord. And they gave 10%, and that took care of the staff and family, the Levites. They did another 10% that took care of building costs and maintenance for the house of the Lord and other kind of places. And there was 3 to 6% for social programs for the poor. So understand, in their monotheistic setting, they asked for offerings. And above that, there was voluntary giving above the tithe. Now, they asked for a king, and what do kings do? By the way, God tried to talk them out of having a king. And they says, no, we want one. He says, okay, listen, I'm going to give you a king. I'm going to give you what you want. But what do kings like to do? They like to tax, okay? So all of a sudden, they had this tithe system that contrasted with a tax system, and things escalated. So in the days of Jesus, one of the reasons it was kind of controversial is that the Roman taxation was about 50%. But if you were a good Pharisee, if you are a good Sadducee, if you are a good Jew, you also had this monotheistic taxation of tithing in addition to that. So imagine in the days of Jesus, they were paying anywhere from 70 to 75% of their income away in terms of either a tithe or taxation system. Now, they also knew what the prophet said. In Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. I mean, they were taught this. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse. The whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops. By the way, you you note the payback here had nothing to do with more money in the bank. He was going to protect them. You might put a thing in there like, you know what? Your car's not going to break down as often. In vines of your fields, they will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. I mean, do we, really, do we really believe that he is the Lord of all creation? That he is the one that ultimately prospers us in terms of harvest? Think about that as a church. Talk about a harvest of souls. Talk about church growth. Do we really believe that God causes the increase, or do we try to manipulate, creating various efforts to get other Christians into our setting because we do it better than the church down the road? Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Now, of course, we've got to ask ourselves how to define blessing and prosperity, and it's easy in our culture. It's money and stuff, and that's our drug of choice. But you understand the context. There's this conflict between nations where God says, listen, I want you to be generous. And Rome that says, I want your money and I want you to be generous to me. (laughs) And then we'll take care of divvying the money out. See, the truth is, true blessing is the freedom from, and you fill the blank in. It's the God of wealth, it's the God of sexuality, it's the God of power. And we are content with who we are and what we have, and we are free from envy, we are free from hoarding, we are free from anxiety about stuff. 
So what I'd like to do in closing is give key attitudes about everything we've talked about that really reflect what it means to invest in heavenly things rather than earthly things, what it means to invest in ways of God that will dethrone the current idols of our culture. And some of these I've already said, but I want to review them because they're critical. First is that we are stewards, not owners. We've got to get that through our head. We do not own anything. First Peter 4, verses 7 through 11 the end of all things is at hand. You know, I hear so many people today talk about they believe Christ is coming back soon. How many people believe that? Raise your hand. Okay. Are you living like it? <laughs> no, we live like we're going to be here for another thousand years. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Investing in our prayers. Investing in our character. Above all things, keep loving one another, earnestly investing in love, since love covers a multitude of sin. We are not defined by our sin. We're defined by Jesus Christ. Amen? Show hospitality. Invest in hospitality to one another without grumbling. Don't see return loss. If you invest in hospitality, you don't grumble as much. As each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's various grace. You don't sit there and complain about how much you serve over against someone else. No, you serve because you're a steward of what God has given you, regardless of what someone else does. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we are stewards, not owners. Gift versus entitlements. Only grace can be received as a gift. It is not an entitlement. That is the core biblical doctrine of salvation through Jesus Christ. We are gifted. We are not entitled. And what you possess, your stuff, people, kids, it's all a gift. As soon as you move to the entitlement realm, you start saying, well, I deserve, and you should. And once you cross over the line, then there's this expectation about getting stuff and that someone else should pay for it. Almost sounds like a political ad, doesn't it? <laughs> entitlement enslaves. It puts people in prison. It distorts their thinking. It distorts their emotions. It destroys spiritual lives. Entitlement breeds bitterness, disappointment, anger, depression. It indebts people and it indebts nations. Gift versus entitlement. Steward versus owner. And then thirdly, investment, eternal versus rights. Have you ever heard someone say, it's my money, I worked hard for it? and I have the rights, you already lost a biblical perspective. And then you start entering discussions like, okay, how much should I give? Is it 10% before taxes or after taxes? Yeah, I know Old Testament first fruits, but God goes first, but government gets seconds. Then we get all legalistic about it, and then we start saying, well, I made $101, so I'm going to tithe $11. Not a penny less, not a penny more. People today, and listen to the language, they have rights. They have rights to a college education. They have rights to choose their sexuality. They have rights to choose to end the life of a child that interrupted their lives. 
If you want to invest in freedom, if you want to invest in life, you want to invest in spirituality, you let go of your rights. I know it sounds crazy. It sounds backwards. It sounds almost as crazy as a baseball player walking away from a $13 million a year contract, doesn't it? But see, he's not defined by the game of baseball. He's defined by his love for Jesus. And Jesus said, I want you to invest over here. And he's going. You've heard me say this before, that we are spiritual beings who happen to have physical bodies. And we live in a very temporary world. And yet I find it interesting when we speak of spirituality, money's rarely brought into discussion. It's rarely seen as spiritual. We talk about prayer and reading the Bible and Bible study, and and they're all spiritual. But it just points out that money is one of the gods of this age in our country. And you know and I know that it destroys marriages. It banks people's lives. It causes people to think more highly about themselves and others less about themselves. People kill over it physically, emotionally, spiritually. And if you follow the news, people say, well, you know, I deserve this. So I loot and I riot and I blame everyone else. Here's the application. Simply, it's trust God. That's it. We got to now bow in humility at his feet. And we have to trust him with everything that he has given us. Because we are stewards, and he has gifted us something far more precious than we could ever earn. And he says, I want you to invest. I want you to invest in my work. Now, pastors have particular passages that we look at and say, wow, I wish that could happen in my lifetime. One of those is found in Exodus 36. Just let me read it to you. You don't need to go there. Moses had a building program going on, and people started giving, and they got the generosity bug. And the generosity bug bit them hard, and they got the joy of the Lord, and they started worshiping, and they found out it was a lot more fun to give than to save. They found out this idol that captured their lives had enslaved them. But listen to what happened. Exodus 36, verse 6. Then Moses gave an order and sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more. Now, do you hear what I read? This is one of these passages that pastors are jealous of. Can you imagine me standing up here, let's say in September, and telling the ushers, Don't take any more offerings. Just stop it. Knock it off. We already have more than we need for the year. We already have more than we need to take care of people. Give it elsewhere. Be generous elsewhere. But just stop it. Knock it off. See that? That is what most of you are thinking inside. So what are you going to believe this morning? I'm going to invite the worship team up. We're going to close with a song. Are you going to leave God? 
Or are you going to believe all the greed-based rumors that suggest the only reason the pastor is preaching about money is because the only thing the church is concerned about is getting your money out of your pocket into theirs? <laughs> yeah, we hear those conversations. Trust God. Pray. Follow the leading of the Spirit. And allow him to, and allow you to invest in things that are far more important than the gods of this world. Let's pray. Father God, may you teach us by your spirit and by your word what all this means. Um, You have blessed us with every spiritual blessing. You've gifted us. You've graced us. Teach us to walk in that blessing and that freedom. And help us, Lord, to invest in things that are far more eternal than this world. We love you. We thank you that we can be here. We thank you for putting up with our imperfections and our sin. May we be faithful to confess those sins, repent, turn, and follow you into a future that we cannot even yet imagine. We pray these things in your name. Amen.